0: In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more.
1: But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. This is Intelligence Matters with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morrell. I think what's called for is a much greater focus
2: on on what we call deterrence by denial, vice deterrence by punishment. So the typical approach of trying to deter the, the use of a nuclear weapon is the traditional Cold War, sort of thinking of mutually assured destruction, or in this case, a variation not mutually assured because North Korea can't destroy us, but basically assuring them that if they use a nuclear weapon, that's going to lead to the destruction of the regime. And that's actually been the declared policy of the United States essentially uh, put out in public in the 20- 2018 nuclear posture review, the idea that essentially if the North Korean regime were to use a nuclear weapon, then that would lead to the end of the regime.
0: Marcus Garlaskus is an expert on North Korea. He served as the intelligence community's senior most North Korea analyst from 2014 to 2020, and he served for 12 years as an analyst with the U.S. military in South Korea. Today, he is a senior fellow at the Atlanta Council, and he teaches at Georgetown University. He joins us today to talk about his career and to give us an update on all things North Korea. We'll be right back with that discussion after a word from our sponsor. I'm Michael Morell, and this is Intelligence Matters. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to
3: Carvana.
4: It doesn't get any better than this.
3: Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes.
1: There really is no place like home.
3: And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole?
0: Marcus, welcome to the show. Welcome to Intelligence Matters. It's very nice to have you with us. Michael, thank you so much for this opportunity. So Marcus, I want to certainly get to North Korea and to your insights on everything that has been going on there recently. But I actually want to start with a little bit about your career. And the question I want to ask you is, is, what got you interested in North Korea and what was your path to becoming the intelligence community's top analyst on North Korea,
2: so I definitely did not plan to be the uh,
0: NIO for North Korea <laughs>
2: early in in my career. I actually uh, started with a regional focus more on Europe when I was an undergraduate and. Uh, it wasn't until later on when I was in the security studies program uh, at Georgetown getting my master's that I did my pivot to Asia long before uh, Kurt Campbell ever coined that term
0: uh, <laughs>
2: to to focus on, on East Asia, because I realized that the role that East Asia would play for the future of American security in the 21st century would be very similar to the importance of Europe for U.S. national security in the 20th. Uh, and then I specifically started to zero in on Korea because uh, e- even back then, you know, over two decades ago, I saw Korea as being sort of the, the central nexus point in, in a coming uh, competition with, uh, with China and really a key both metaphorical and literal potential battleground in, uh, in East Asia. So that, that's what led me to, to focus on Korea. Uh, and then, of course, I really gotten a bit by the Korea bug, so to speak, when, uh, when I was first stationed there in 2002. And, and that was uh, in the intelligence estimate shop in, the, uh, in the, the J-2 and U.S. Forces Korea and the combined uh, command there. And that really got me even more interested in, in focusing on Korea. And that was where I really learned a lot about uh, estimative forward-looking intelligence. And that's where I learned about the history of national intelligence officers and the National Intelligence Council. And then that's when I made up my mind, uh, I wanted to be a, a national intelligence officer someday if I could. But back then, they didn't even have a national intelligence officer for North right, Korea. It was uh, right, the national right. intelligence officer for East Asia. So so that that was sort of where it started. I spent 12 years at, at USFK, and uh, my last five years there, I wasn't even in the intelligence community. I, I left the IC to become the, uh, the chief of the strategy division and focusing on not so much just understanding the the challenges posed by North Korea and in the region, but uh, coming up with the uh, the strategic approaches and the recommendations. Uh for how to deal with them for the, the four-star there and for the for the policy and strategy community in Washington and then working a lot with our allies. So I, I never thought I would go back into intelligence, but but as it turned out, it was the perfect preparation for me to be able to be a, a, the national intelligence officer. So when I was offered the opportunity, then at the end of my, uh, my time there in Korea or bringing an end to my time there in Korea in 2014, I, I jumped at the chance.
0: So Marcus, I want to get a kind of a baseline from you on north korea's strategic weapons programs and let's start with nuclear weapons what types do they have roughly how many i know you're constrained somewhat on how you can talk about that and how well do they work
2: so overall to start it's important to note that north korea's nuclear weapons program began as a plutonium program and uh, it was very limited by the fact that they could only produce fissile material at the uh, Yongbyon reactor. And so a relatively small uh, amount of this uh, fissile material that could be used for nuclear warheads was really where the, the program started. And that was the uh, the initial focus of our negotiations to try and halt and, and roll back North Korea's nuclear program, that the plutonium program. Right. Um, but then over time, they developed also a uranium-based uh, program, enriched uranium-based uh, weapons. And so uh, that's added uh, tremendously to North Korea's ability to continue to grow their stockpiles. So I'm not going to get into the numbers, but the typical estimate is that they can produce you know, somewhere between five or six of these a year when you look at what a lot of these institutions that study this are uh, are saying. So, so the stockpile continues to to grow, particularly, again, because of the uh, uranium enrichment program that, uh, that North Korea has. Now, as far as the types of weapons, we've seen them do six uh, nuclear tests. And one of those tests was claimed to be with a, uh, a two-stage uh, hydrogen weapon, and what's been, you know, a, an H bomb, a fusion uh, weapon. And what's been uh, put out there, of course, by the uh, by the U.S. government, is that the yield of this this test was large enough to be consistent with uh, with a hydrogen bomb. So you you got that, and that that's uh, referred to colloquially as the peanut. It's this big silver sh- peanut-shaped thing that looks like it could fit onto the uh, to the end of uh, of North Korea's uh, ICBMs, and even the their intermediate range missile, and then you've got a a, a, a smaller device, a, a fission implosion device that it's spherical, and so it's a, it's kind of a dubbed the disco ball. Uh, and that one uh, again looks like it can fit on a whole range of uh, different missiles from uh, from North Korea. And so so you've got uh, here again at least two different types of, of warhead that look like they could be used on missiles. One that, that has a, a much higher yield that could basically we're talking about destroying cities, not just limited use. And then we you see the approach. There's a lot of uh, talk about the potential for North Korea to conduct a seventh nuclear test, and much of the discussion that you, that you see on this is the concern that it will be a tactical, uh, much smaller device that could fit on a smaller missile and that would have a lower yield, but that would make it much more useful for a limited strike or for battlefield use. What they uh, would call it a, a tactical nuclear weapon. So we don't know, again, you know how big the arsenal is, but it's growing, it's diversifying, it's becoming more more sophisticated uh, over time, and uh, and again there. There's this concern about an imminent seventh nuclear test. Don't know when it's going to happen, but certainly expectation that it's going to come soon.
0: So Marcus, let's do exactly the same thing with ICBMs capable of hitting the United States. What's the story there?
2: So for the longest time, the, the concern about ICBMs uh, for North Korea was that they were going to use this large, cumbersome, essentially, space launch vehicle, the uh, the Taepodong, as an ICBM. And so for so much of, of the time that uh, there was focus on North Korea's uh, missile program, that was the concern. And that all, all started to rapidly change in 2017 when you saw that uh, North Korea was testing mobile ICBMs, what they called the uh, Hwasong-14 and then later 15. And this marked a fundamental change in the nature of the ICBM threat. So you saw instead of a notional system that based on a space launch vehicle that would take a long time to stack up and be very visible out in the open, now you had a system that could really have military utility that was being tested in such a way that it was not just a notional ICBM capability, but that showed the uh, potential to be able to lift a payload consistent with the size of uh, what you'd expect from a, a North Korean nuclear weapon to be able to reach the United States. And the uh, the only thing that left some ambiguity, of course, was the fact that they were launching these things on a very high trajectory, so they weren't imitating the, the pathway that they would take to get to the United States. And so the conditions for which the reentry vehicle would be going through the atmosphere are not the same as they would be if fired on a flatter trajectory. So there's still some debate and some question about it, what the reliability and, and capability there is to really uh, strike the United States, but I, I think I would err on the side of caution and say that they've established that uh, capability to some degree. And then, of course, they had this pause in uh, an ICBM testing uh, associated with the, uh, the negotiations in, uh, in 2018 and 2019, but then they resumed uh, their ICBM testing earlier this year with an even larger mobile uh, mobile ICBM system. So they've continued to make progress, but I think that progress has been accelerating, and the, the testing program has really shown that North Korea is willing to take some risks and push the envelope. Uh, but at the end of the day, we're, we're talking about a technology that was developed in the, in the 1960s and had really become mature by the 70s or 80s. So the, the fact that North Korea is making all this progress in, in ICBMs, given uh, how long these uh, technologies have been out there and how much progress there's been made in things like material science and, and how much the North Koreans can learn from others' missile programs, it, it shouldn't be a
0: surprise that they've made this much progress. Right. You mentioned earlier the idea that these that these weapons can fit on top of these missiles, right? But they've never actually tested that. Is that correct? What's our confidence level that they can actually mate a nuclear device to a missile and deliver it, you know, where they want and make it work? What's your sense on that question?
2: this question of confidence levels is really tough and you know a lot of it's a a matter of a personal opinion of course i'm just speaking for myself here but but i uh, but i would say uh you know just my my personal assessment is that that we we have to make the assumption that they have that capability and so my confidence level would still be you know relatively low but confident enough to be able to make the call that that's what we should be uh, basing our thinking on and i and that's what i've i've written on i've published on since i've left the government i think there's always going to be skepticism until north korea conducts a full end-to-end test with a missile, and then there is a nuclear yield detonation at the other end of that launch. But I'd like to point out, this is not a typical test profile. This is something that's been very rare in the history of nuclear weapons testing. And and for other countries, the bar has not really been set that high that you have to have a uh, fully realistic end-to-end test with a nuclear detonation at the end to consider that country to be nuclear-armed. Uh, and right. So I, I don't think we should apply that standard to North Korea either. I mean, we can we can really dilute ourselves in, into assault, a false sense of security if that's the standard we're going to hold them to.
0: Marcus, you mentioned tactical nuclear weapons earlier. How long have they been working on those and what kind of weapons are those? Are those mines Are those you know warheads for very short range rockets? What do those actually look like?
2: Well, I, I couldn't tell you exactly when they started, but it's it's very clear that North Korea has been looking at the potential for battlefield use of weapons for a long time. In particular when you look at what Kim Jong un had to say in his remarks, the party congress in twenty twenty one he had said that the North Korean had actually successfully developed nuclear weapons and turned them into to tactical ones. And so I think we can say that, that the North Koreans have been doing this effort for a while if you, if you take uh, Kim Jong-un at his, at his word. And I think this is uh, a concern not just because that they've uh, been working on on warheads and, and potentially you could see a smaller warhead tested, but also because they've been working on delivery systems uh, that they're billing as providing a tactical nuclear capability. So we're talking about shorter range missiles, Solid fuel missiles, very mobile, very hard to very hard to track, very much battlefield utility, not these uh, big cumbersome things. So shorter range, yes, but a lot of uh, potential options in for North Korea to put this on, a, on a, a range of different weapon systems. And that's one of the reasons why it's a concern, right? Because in that case, you might not be able to distinguish a particular missile system. Is it carrying a nuclear weapon or,
0: or not? Right. Okay, let's switch to maybe the hardest question, which is, you know, doctrine and use. And I'm wondering, you know, in your mind, under what circumstances do you think Kim Jong Un would actually consider using nuclear weapons, either strategic or those tactical battlefield weapons?
2: So, uh, actually, Kim Jong Un uh, has been kind enough to actually give us a, a bit of a sense of the conditions for uh, nuclear weapons use. They just promulgated a new law from uh, North Korea very publicly on the conditions for uh, for use of nuclear weapons uh, and and overall on their uh, on their their uh, the role of nuclear weapons in in uh, North Korea's security. And so I think you can you can take from this some very important uh, conclusions. Uh, one is that North Korea is not claiming their their weapons are just for deterrent purposes uh, as, as they have on occasion. Now they're saying they'll be used for operational missions to repulse uh, hostile uh, forces, aggression and attack, and to achieve decisive victory in war if deterrence fails. They say that they uh, they're going to retaliate with a nuclear strike if their uh, their command and control system their and their state leadership is uh, put under threat. That they can be justified in using nuclear weapons um, if they've come under a nuclear or non-nuclear attack on a, important strategic targets and, and even if such an attacks on horizon so on the horizon so they're saying that they could use them preemptively they're also saying uh, in, in this uh, document that they could use uh, nuclear weapons to prevent the expansion and protraction of a war and to retake the initiative uh, and then of course they have an open-ended uh, you know any number of other other situations and the emphasis in this document is that they're going to be able to use them on very short notice there's not a lengthy preparation period the military units are being directed in this document if they receive the order they need to be able to be ready for action to use them. And so I've done some analysis and, and, uh, and, and some work since leaving the government on this question of the, the mindsets that North Korea could have in mind for that would lead to nuclear use. And you could see it in a, in a circumstance, maybe in a limited way, that's very opportunistic at the, at the start of a conflict. But I think it's more likely uh, as you get to the point where the re- regime is losing the initiative, or as the document you know, says, where, where you see North Korea, North Korea's regime is under threat, Then to retake the initiative and to try and bring a conflict to a conclusion on favorable terms for North Korea, I could definitely see the potential for them. To use uh, weapons to both uh, operationally blunt a, a alliance counterattack by, against uh, North Korean aggression, but also uh, for the strategic purpose of forcing the uh, the ROK and the US to think very carefully about going any further at risk of other nuclear escalation going beyond just a, a tactical use. So it's a it's a way for North Korea to achieve some practical effects, but also strategically put us back on our heels
0: and make us concerned about further nuclear escalation. All right. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor, then we'll be right back with more of a discussion with Marcus Garlaskus.
4: Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road.
3: That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be.
0: So Marcus, you were the strategy guy, right, at USFK. So if you think about what you just said in terms of how Kim Jong-un might be thinking about this. What should our response be? You know, what should we signal to them in terms of how we would deal with such a situation in order to deter them?
2: So I, I think what's called for is a much greater focus on on what we call deterrence by denial, vice deterrence by punishment. So the typical approach of trying to uh, prevent the uh, deter the, the use of a nuclear uh, nuclear weapon um, is is the, the traditional Cold War uh, sort of thinking of mutually assured destruction, uh, or in this case a variation, not not mutually assured because North Korea can't destroy us, but basically assuring them uh, that if they use a nuclear weapon, uh, that's going to lead to the destruction of the regime, and that's actually been the declared policy of the United States essentially uh, put out in public in the 2018 nuclear posture review the idea that essentially if the North Korean regime were to use a nuclear weapon then that would lead to the end of the regime that's that's uh, paraphrasing the the statement that's right, been that's right. been our policy but I would argue that's going to be a harder and harder statement to remain credible as North Korea considers these different limited options capabilities and then also because of the concern about how China might react if we were to go after the uh, the North Korean regime in such a scenario. And so focusing on deterrence by denial, essentially denying them uh, success or advantage from being able to use uh, nuclear weapons, I think is really key. So things like making our missile defenses better, making our forces more resilient, and basically coming to grips with the idea that North Korea may use a nuclear weapon uh, in the event of a conflict and being prepared to, uh, as the saying goes, fight through and still achieve victory that, that North Korea can't gain any advantage by limited nuclear use that is just going to make the, uh, the the situation worse for them. It's not going to get them advantage. Those are some of the, the military things that I, I would consider. And then also I think another big element is to really emphasize alliance cohesion and coordination to make it clear that we will have a unified alliance response and there won't be a break in the alliance if North Korea engages in nuclear escalation, that that will push the ROK and the U.S. together and the U.S. and Japan together, it won't really create a dilemma that North Korea might be hoping for by using such weapons.
0: What's the state of the alliance today? How healthy is it?
2: I think it's on the mend, but uh, there certainly was some some rough spots in the uh, in the last few years, some pretty uh, significant differences of, of focus and some very public uh, disagreements. But I still think it can't be taken for granted. I, I think there's a, a lot of work to be done all the time in an alliance like the important one that we have with the Republic of Korea. So even though uh, th- things I think are improving and certainly the overall relationship between the ROK and U.S. is good, we have to very carefully work with the South Koreans to reassure them, And recognize that more than just providing military support to each other, and the U.S. providing its uh, so-called nuclear umbrella to to South Korea, that political, economic, informational coordination between the ROK and the U.S. is uh, is important as well. And so, when I see things like friction over over trade issues, or I see different messages to North Korea and to Beijing coming from Seoul and Washington, uh, that tells
0: me that we uh, have some more work to do to get the alliance more closely aligned. So, Marcus. Let me ask about all the recent activity we've seen in the last you know several months, the the missile tests. You talked about a coming, you know possible nuclear test. How much of this is actually, you know, driven by military necessity in terms of testing, you know how much is driven by domestic politics in north korea and and how much is coercive diplomacy? And to the extent that it's the latter, What do they want?
2: No, I think it's a great question, and the the, uh, the bottom line answer, uh, uh, as often as the case with uh, with analysts, I'm sure you've heard it many times before, <laughs> is it's complicated and it depends, yeah. right? So it's yeah. it's a bit sure. it's a bit sure. of each, right? Um, but but let me uh, let me say first, I'm really glad that you didn't uh, in, include the hypothesis of they're just doing it to get attention, uh, because that's the I think the most mistaken case that we often see. But looking at some of these other possibilities, I do think it's a combination, and I think it, some of it depends on the individual uh, profile, But overall, I think you've seen a fundamental change from the era of Kim Jong-il, where he was really testing weapons for political signaling and the actual progress of the weapon systems was a secondary or or maybe even an irrelevant component in some cases. Uh, Whereas Kim Jong-un, I think we have very good reason to believe that he's genuinely trying to advance not just the credibility of his uh, nuclear and missile arsenal, but also its actual capability, uh, qualitative uh, improvements in the arsenal. So I think that's that's a big part of it. And certainly, is there a political signaling involved? Are there, are there domestic political considerations? Sure. But I think a lot of times those things come into play in terms of the messaging and the timing of these particular launches, as opposed to really completely driving and, and dictating the um, what's going to be uh, tested or what sort of weapons are going to be pursued. Because uh, to have an effective weapons program, you need to do testing. To have an operationally effective military, you need to do training. And you need to uh, ensure that you can operationally employ these systems. And so, so I I think I would weight this much more toward the advancement of of the programs to some degree, yes, coercion and uh, messaging involved, but overall that's more related to how it's messaged and the timing more so than the big picture of the direction where those uh, tests and, and, uh, demonstrations are headed. And
0: then back to your, back to your strategy hat, how should we respond to all of this? And particularly if there's another nuclear test, how do you think about that?
2: This is a real challenge, to be quite blunt, is that there, there's really no good option that's really going to put us in a really great place after North Korea conducts a weapons test, in part because China has been so uncooperative in holding North Korea accountable, right? And, and ultimately, if, if China is not fully on board in holding North Korea accountable in and in applying economic sanctions on North Korea and making sure the international community is united, not to forget Russia, of course, who is also pretty uncooperative, but, but ultimately much much less economically and politically important in North Korea than China. The focus really needs to be on improving the deterrence capability of the uh, U.S. South Korea alliance even more so than focusing on trying to apply some sort of economic pressure or punishment after launches. That, I think, should be part of the equation. We can do a lot more to tighten up enforcement of sanctions. I think we should be doing more to go after different institutions that are doing business with North Korea in violation of sanctions. I think we should be willing to go after a broad range of Chinese companies that are doing business with North Korea in violation of of sanctions or other different means that we can use to hold uh, North Korea accountable to inflict some economic punishment, particularly as it relates to the the currency generation for the regime. But ultimately, uh, we have to recognize that each time North Korea uh, moves forward with uh, demonstrating and improving its capabilities, that we have to be sure we're doing the right things on the military side, the defense side, to make sure that we're we're ready to be able to counter that. And we can be often very risk averse, both in terms of how we approach uh, sanctions and how we approach uh, military readiness. And I think the key is not to feel like you have to make a public demonstration every time uh, North Korea fires a weapon, tests a weapon, but you do have to to think through how can we improve the posture of our forces, how can we improve their readiness level, what changes do we need to make that we've been reluctant to make because they might be considered provocative, that ultimately are necessary to shore up deterrence as North Korea's capabilities improve, and, and ultimately may be the thing that gets China's attention, right? China sees that uh, the military posture on the peninsula is changing like for example, the deployment of the uh, THAAD missile defense battery a few years ago in response to North Korean uh, missile tests. That might be the very thing that actually gets the Chinese to do more to uh, to actually put some pressure on, on North Korea. But at the end of the day, uh, I think it's it's tightening the the sanctions enforcement as best we can on those really those really key areas where we've been reluctant to accept risk, and then being willing to improve the posture of the uh, U.S.-South Korea alliance to be able to to uh, to deal with aggression by North Korea.
0: And to do those things, right, that you talked about earlier in terms of our strategic response to what they're doing overall, it sounds oh. like that's a whole package, right?
2: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So that all fits yeah, within yeah. how do we yep. improve yep. the deterrence by denial? Absolutely.
0: Yeah. Gotcha. We're going to take another quick break. We'll be right back with more Intelligence Matters. Stay with us.
4: Ah.
3: <sighs>
0: So, Marcus, you just mentioned China, which I think is a great place to pivot here to China. What's China's role in North Korea's behavior, and you know, could they be more helpful? Would the North Koreans be responsive? How do you think about that whole question?
2: So, China has been an enabler of North Korea's bad behavior for for a very long time, and uh, it's not because the Chinese necessarily are out there to see North Korea engage in aggression or that they're particularly happy about uh, North Korea's nuclear program, but that ultimately their goal of avoiding a war or chaos on their doorstep means that they're very sensitive to the potential of backing North Korea into the corner or, or, or into a corner or causing the collapse of the North Korean regime. And so when they look at how can they restrain the situation from spiraling into conflict, how can they uh, restrain the situation from getting to the point where the North Korean uh, regime's control collapses, that it's ultimately easier to, to try and restrain South Korea and the United States. So when you look at the situation now, the the added factor is the strategic competition, strategic rivalry between Beijing and and Washington is really affecting China's thinking uh, as well. And I, I think... The level of cooperation that we can expect from from China going forward is definitely got to be even even less than than it was before. And so I do see uh, the potential, even if the the Chinese uh, are not necessarily going to encourage intentionally North Korea to escalate. and I, that's always a possibility, right? If there's a if there's a U.S. China conflict going on over Taiwan, who knows? They might uh, actually want the North Koreans to escalate to tie down uh, our, our forces and maybe even open a, a second front. But even if China is not intentionally encouraging the North Koreans to escalate. That pushback against the ROK and U.S. military activities, uh, that constant shielding of Pyongyang from the consequences of its actions, uh, I think unintentionally encourages North Korea to believe that it can can escalate further and and essentially has a lot more space to continue to, to conduct uh, not just uh, uh, testing and demonstrations of weapons, but even in the future to conduct some limited aggression against South Korea, like it has in the past, and really push the envelope of its uh, a coercive approach against South Korea and its pushback against the the United States. And so, so I really think the prospects for for close cooperation with China, and North Korea, were never really that great uh, as it appeared, but they're they're getting worse. And I think ultimately, it's more about making it in China's interest to restrain North Korea. To pressure North Korea and to uh, to try and, and pull it pull it back from from aggression, to make it in China's interest rather than expecting through through open you know co- cooperation and trust that that's going to happen. And to be fair, there's limits to probably how far China actually can go to uh, restrain North Korea without putting it in the, itself in the situation where it does uh, destabilize North Korea or it does. Uh, push North Korea to a position where then it decides that it's it's worth the risk to go against what China is looking for. So so I think there are practical limits to what China can accomplish, even if we could get them to uh, to be more in line with our approach of restraining and pressuring North Korea.
0: It also seems right that we have more room today to bring some pain to China with regard to you know its behavior vis-a-vis North Korea because the relationship is in this strategic rivalry point, right? And we're not having to worry about, you know, undermining the U.S.-China relationship the way we used to.
2: Michael, I think you're right. And it's, it's my personal view that we do need to do a lot more to hold uh, Chinese uh, individuals and, and institutions, businesses accountable for their role in aiding and
0: abetting North Korean uh, sanctions evasion. And do you have any sense what the relationship is like between Kim Jong-un and Xi Jinping? I know it's a tough question.
2: Yeah, well, uh, certainly, um, it, it's something that's evolved, right? I, when when uh, Kim uh, Kim Jong Un came into power, you really had no relationship between him and uh, and and, uh, and Xi Jinping, and and it, it took years, of course, before they they met in their their status as, as leaders, and then you saw this very rapid, uh, I, I think, shift in into a much more positive relationship after the North Koreans uh, paused their weapons testing for a while, and then and then you had these uh, these summits with Xi that actually re- remember the the. The summit with Xi took place before the first summit with President Trump. And so Kim was in some ways, I think, setting conditions to make sure that Xi Jinping was in his corner and that he had Xi's view on how to approach this. And so I think that that has shown in a much more positive relationship with North Korea, even though it's resumed the weapons testing, that hasn't resulted in a setback in the relationship at the national level. So I can imagine maybe Xi Jinping uh, might be a little bit irritated with uh, with Kim Jong-un in some ways, but more broadly, they seem to have a, a much more... A positive relationship certainly than when earlier in uh, in Kim Jong-un's uh, tenure. but as far as the level of uh, personal you know warmth or that sort of thing between the two I, I just I just couldn't say but but certainly I think you see some positive uh, body language in Kim Jong-un being willing to uh, I think show deference to Xi Jinping which I imagine uh, makes a positive
0: impression on Xi so Marcus two more questions one is you frequently hear you know how do the Chinese look at, the Russia-Ukraine war, and what are the lessons they might be learning from it? You know, Have you given any thought to how the North Koreans might be looking at it and what lessons they might be drawing from it?
2: No, I think that's a great question, and I, and I have thought about that. And there, there's a whole range of different theories about uh, what what North Korea could be learning. But I, I the thing that concerns me the most is the potential for North Korea to take the lesson that nuclear threats and nuclear coercion will lead to restraint on the part of the U.S. and its allies, right? And certainly that's the impression I think a lot of people have about how the uh, United States and NATO are reacting to Putin's nuclear threats, that it is giving us pause, that we might be doing more if it were not for that. We might be doing more to support Ukraine. So I hope that's not the lesson that the North Koreans take away at the end of the day. I hope the North Koreans pay close attention to the fact that simply bombarding uh, a democratic society with missiles is not going to lead them to uh, to surrender, and that certainly uh, conducting an offensive with uh, with ground forces uh, against a determined uh, opposition, particularly armed with anti tank missiles in urbanized terrain, is not going to be uh, very uh, very successful. It's going to be very hard. So, I mean, it could go either way, and I, and I think it will probably take years for all this to play out to the point where you can really see how it's affected uh, North Korean thinking. Because I think we need to watch changes in force structure, changes in in doctrine, bigger picture things, and we could focus a lot on what the North Koreans are saying in public about this, but that might not give us really deep insights into what they're really learning.
0: And I guess the other thing, right, is the war's not over yet and we don't know the result, right, so that's kind of important here in terms of the lessons learned. Last question, you know, I worked on North Korea, I don't know, 25 years ago, and at that time, you know, we in the community, in the intelligence community would say this regime can't last, right? This, this is not possible, right? This is runs against the currents of history. What's your reaction to the possibility of regime change there or a collapse of the regime? What would that take? Is that even possible
2: I, I certainly think it's possible. And I think any system that's based around one man rule, and it's important to keep in mind, uh, it's even more, more stark than that is that Kim Jong-un has no clearly defined successor at this point, right? They, they've got this, uh, this publicly announced position, uh, essentially, uh, that would allow for a successor, but, uh, they haven't announced anybody that's in it. Right. Right. And so, so I think the sudden death of, uh, of Kim Jong-un from an accident, uh, you know, say from a, from a, a, a lone assassin, someone, uh, who's wronged by Kim Jong-un, decides you know to go out fighting uh, I think the, the you know those are possibilities that could very easily lead to disruption with the North Korean system to the point where where it could collapse but but these are sort of me not black swans but the, the the term gray rhinos right these are these are sort of low probability high impact events. right. Um, right, I think right. that the more likely scenario is that a future generation right that the succession uh, of Kim jong-un to another leader maybe even if it's prepared over time it, it doesn't go well and that's what causes the, the system to uh, to finally collapse and certainly you know we've seen a lot of change internally in North Korea in the uh, in the last 20 years the access to information uh, the changes in attitudes the uh, the relief uh, entrenchment of the markets into North Korea despite you know the regime's efforts to uh, constrain them and roll them back and so i am cautiously optimistic that over time particularly if the international community really with south korea and the united states in the lead Encourage those sorts of bottom-up changes in North Korea. Do more to get information into a North Korean society. Do more to uh, to shape attitudes that I could see uh, some some change over time, and ultimately leading uh, to uh, to building a pressure that fundamentally uh, changes the system. Again, particularly if there's a key moment, like say the the sudden death of Kim Jong Un, or or uh, you know a, a generation from now, a, right, a, a right. gradual change of successor. So so I, I I wouldn't rule it out, but I I think the system is so artificially imposed against human nature on the North Korean people that eventually that regime is going to fall, but it it could take a very long time.
0: Marcus, thank you so much for joining us. And uh, thank you for the conversation. It's been terrific. Thank you, Michael. I
2: appreciate the opportunity.
0: You're welcome. That was Marcus Garlaskus. I'm Michael Morrell. Please join us next week for another episode of
1: Intelligence Matters. Intelligence Matters is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, Paulina Smolinski, and Reggie Bazile. For more from this week's show, visit cbsnews.com. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS News. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts.